being recorded. Um, we will post the recording online publicly so that you can share with your colleagues if appropriate. Um, the Q&A function is available for you to ask questions. The panel will discuss three key topics today and is planning to reserve time um, at the end for Q&A. Some topics covered today may be sensitive or difficult to hear, so we have allowed audience members to submit questions anonymously to the Q&A panel. Um, in addition to that, the panel encourages all of us to listen actively, accept others' reality, ask compassionate questions, and to remember that at the end of the day, while we are discussing companies, we really are talking about people here. So please also keep in mind that we do uh, have quite a large crowd, so the panel may not be able to get to every question that is asked today. While today's event is hosted by Albany Law School and Western Governors University, this ongoing HR and practice webinar series is offered in association with the Capital Region Human Resources Association, which is a SHRM affiliate here in New York's capital, Albany. You may self-report one recertification credit to HRCI or SHRM for today's event. Uh, CRHRA offers opportunities for learning and networking through their weekly newsletter, events, and a whole lot more. People in the area may wish to get in contact with them. Albany Law School offers five fully online graduate programs designed for the working professional, whether or not they have any prior legal education. All programs offer a, a nine credit advanced certificate option, a 30 credit master of science for those with or without any legal background, and a 24 credit specialized LLM for attorneys. Courses are short, you can choose from six start dates per year, and we will work with you uh, with your organization's tuition reimburse, reimbursement payment policies, excuse me. We are excited to present this webinar with the nonprofit accredited Western Governors University. Thanks to our partners at WGU, including Jason Thompson, who you'll be hearing from today on the panel. And welcome to everyone in the audience from the WGU College of Business. Without further ado, let's get started. So today's speakers in no particular order are Jermaine Cruz, Assistant Dean for Diversity and Inclusion here at Albany Law School, Renee Tirado, Principal of Vega Robles Consulting with former senior diversity and inclusion roles at Gucci, Major League Baseball, AIG, just to name a few, uh, Chang Yu Hao, Vice Chancellor, Human Resources at Rancho Santiago Community College District, and an adjunct professor here at Albany Law School. And finally, Jason Thompson, Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Western Governors University. The speaker's bios can be found on the event registration site if you want to read more about their backgrounds. So to get started, the first key question for the panel um, and panelists, if you're on, you can come on camera if you're not. Um, the first key question is, what is the current landscape of corporate DEI? Jason Thompson, would you like to get us started? Yeah, thank you. Um, I think one of the things we found, um, and, and I would assume the other panels have seen this too, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, every company came out with a statement and everybody was making statements. And I think one of the things we're seeing now, there's kind of a unique nuance that we haven't seen in the past. Um, recently on Equal Pay Day, there was a Twitter bot that was built. And basically every time a company made a statement, they would post, their pay equity, because many companies are posting that and basically show these companies um, still are not paying women fairly or justly, if you will. 
And to me, that speaks to kind of this unique nuance is it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it. And what I see the challenge or hopefully the opportunity as well is that I always say audio has to match video. If you're saying this, people want to see it. And if you look at the recent lawsuit with the Rooney rule, you kind of see the same thing. And, and that's an argument that's being made is, you know, you've, you've said this, this is your policy, but we're not seeing it. We don't see the black coaches. We don't see the coaches of color on the sideline. And so that disconnect uh, that many people are seeing, they, they're calling out. And so companies now have to move beyond pledges. The pledges were the easiest part. Now we have to have outcomes. And I think there's a unique nuance that we've not really had before. It's not that it's new, but social media that there are now ways for people to voice their concerns and call out challenges that didn't quite exist in the past. So I think that new wrinkle is different. I also think um, a lot of companies um, thought about their statements, but were not thoughtful in our, how are we going to do this? And so I think we're at that point where companies are being called out and that they also have to put more thought into how are we actually going to achieve on this pledge? The pledge was the easiest part. Now it's outcomes and people are going to push on, do you have that outcome and can we see it? Um, the pledge was the easy part. So I think that's what we're seeing in the market. I would be curious to see uh, maybe Renee, what your thoughts are and if what you're seeing as well. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, I, you know, plus one on all of that. I think you're absolutely right. Like there was a tremendous amount of momentum and energy um, that came right out of the gate with this. I also think to everything that you said, there's also a little bit of a fatigue around this. And primarily because to your point, all of the energy within the comms and the communications and the pledges, and now there's this, this a little bit of a holding pattern. Like what does this really look like? How do we really activate on this? You know, how do we build out a strategy? Um, you know, and also like Jason, for those of us who've been doing this work for a while, we know this work doesn't happen overnight. So I think part of that fatigue and frustration is coming from, for those who are not embedded in the DEI work, this is not moving or feeling like it's moving fast enough. This is very slow change. I mean, we're talking about that at the core, DEI is culture change, and there's nothing harder to evolve or develop or shift than culture in an organization. So um, the progress will be slow, but you know, there is something to be said for actually building out momentum around the small wins. Because um, you're you're talking about undoing systems and processes, many of which are, you know, have a history of hundreds of hundreds of years, um, tied to whether it's our company, our cult, I mean, our country culture or your company culture. So, um, to your point about keeping, you know, putting more action behind the talk, it's like you're right. I think now is like for those organizations. Um, that didn't build a strategy, they're, they're scrambling, trying to figure out what does a strategy really look like in this space and where do we start? How do we build it out? Where do we anchor it to? Who's responsible for it? Um, for those who have a strategy, I think now it's like actually revisiting a little bit more to understand uh, like, how are we doing? And those are the hard things. That's the hardest part that's happening right now, kind of seeing, okay, like we haven't done as well as we thought. Um, we're not able to keep up with the commitments that we made. So I'm um, having a little bit of those aha moments to really start thinking about what does this look like? How do we keep up momentum and make this a key part of our organizational agenda and not just a standalone initiative in response to a, a social issue that's come out. While that's important, it's not how it should actually be framed. And you know, the conversations have stalled out a little bit. You know, all of those conversations at like community building that we did post George Floyd, every company was neat has like that has stopped. 
Um, people don't know how to continue this. And it's really starting to think about including, I'm sorry, of course, nobody calls me all day and they call me right now, apologies. Um, that inclusion is actually a, uh, a muscle that has to be flexed and practiced on a day in day out basis. So it should be part of your leadership competencies. It should be defined with behaviors. Uh, it should be reinforced with micro learnings and nudging nudges all along the way, not just for credit. This should be something that's ongoing. And you know, and to your point, Jason, like the communications part, you know, we have to keep providing part of that accountability and keeping this going so that we don't stay stagnant. It's just making sure that companies are following up on those initial comms and sharing what they're doing and not doing, owning what they're not doing well and being prepared to iterate on it. Now, I don't know, Jermaine or actually, you know, Chang, I'm just curious what your perspective is on this. Yeah, thanks so much, Renee. Absolutely. I, I do agree fully in terms of communication. I think, you know, when you commit to something, you should definitely communicate that and walk your employees through change. That's part of the change management process, getting from the current state to a future state. And that takes a lot of handholding and regular updates to make sure people actually feel included and that they actually feel like they're being walked to and being respected and therefore, you know, pro proactively projecting that belonging moment. But, you know, as, as we kind of look at communication, it's also important to look at measurements. I know with measurements, um, a lot of these, um, you know, standardized measurements are, you know, how many of each demographics do we have? Should we recruit more of these demographics? And how do we, is that the only way we can kind of measure any progress with uh, DEI? So on, on the other hand, you know, numbers are not the only thing that you should be measuring. And also if you do measure numbers, you know, keep in mind that our identities are constantly changing and are fluid in nature. So your gender identity, you know, your, you know, ethnicity, your culture, you know, that may change um, over time. Um, it may change because you may be born to a specific culture and ethnicity, but later maybe you move to some other countries or another city in which, you know, you may change that affiliation. Same with gender identity as we see the society as are legitimizing what we can be and should be and defining that and give us that legitimacy in the society. So, so with that being said, you know, there are multiple other methods that you can measure and deliver on these promises. So it's just establishing a pipeline. You know, United Airlines made a commitment that they'll hire this amount of women and people of color pilots by a specific year. But do you actually provide the resources for your society, for your community, for these women and these women people of color to be able to get through where they need to get to in order to get to be a pilot? Right? Are the education there? Are the fiscal resources there? And so forth. Um, there's also a concept on relational analytics. Are you analyzing your workforce in terms of how they can be more siloed or more interactive? Are they more you know, valuable because they are the one person in your team that can project that influence to other groups? And if you do lose that individual, then what would happen to you? So that, in a sense, would help with that inclusive and belonging aspect as you're kind of tying your efforts into the mission vision of your, um, of your, ident of your organization's identity. Um, but, you know, uh, I know, you know, beyond those HR policy issues and measurements, um, there are a lot more. I was just wondering, Jermaine, if you have any inputs in that, in that realm. Absolutely. Thank you, Chang. So to put um, some of what my colleagues have said into perspective, Renee Myers 
um, uses this line uh, all the time, and many of you may know her <clears throat> as Netflix's VP of Diversity and Strategy. That's not her exact title, but somewhere in that area. But she says the diversity is being invited to the party and inclusion is being asked to dance. So I think where we are right now is that there's a lot of folks at the party, but nobody's dancing. Everybody's up, everybody's sort of standing on the walls. Um, and I think that, that part of that, part of the reason for that is that for those of us that have been doing this DEI work for a long time, I think a lot of us know that this is still seen as sort of this feel-good work that doesn't have um, any validity or um, it's not a practice, right? But the reality is that the practice of this work is really rooted in educational practices and policy and procedural development and implementation. And so... When you're thinking about this sort of from an organizational standpoint, that's the very reason that it's really important for organizational traditional policies to really be solid and enforceable before we can introduce DEI policies into the structure. Because without those strong organizational policies and procedures, you add DEI policies and procedures, and those procedures will undoubtedly fail. Um, and so when we're looking at DEI policies and practices, it's essential. Um, you know, that they be made part of the organizational fabric by first <clears throat> being sure that the organizational fabric is sewn correctly, right? And so if you're talking about HR in particular, which 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 I will at the moment, um, you know, our HR professionals have a responsibility to develop policies that, re that reflect the importance of diversity in the organization <clears throat> and getting those policies right is really important. And so if you don't get those right, you're really risking the, you know, some organizational breakdown, um, but also individual employing feelings of, you know, in, invisibility and sort of this malnourishment by the organization and they've been brought into a situation where they are not quite sure where they fit and, and are sort of feeling like they've been sold, they've been sold a bunch of goods that they can't do anything with. And so that's when you start seeing things like, you know, turnover and complaints and decrease in production and, and the quality of the work product and really division among organizational units and, and you know, and sort of general employee dissatisfaction. So, you know, for many of us that have been doing this work for a while and do this every day, there's, there's really a lot of pressure to get it right, but really a lot of times with very little understanding of what the work really is and what it entails um, and really an inability from the leadership structure so offer organizational support, um, you know, and a lot of times we're one person shops or maybe a two person shop operationally, and we have really little, you know, very, very few resources. And we, as individuals doing this work, are really expending a lot of emotional capital with very little sort of human and or financial resources in return. And so the expectations continue to be, you know, great and vast, but the resources maintain themselves at a very minimal level. And so, um, you know, and there, there are some problems that come from this and some risks involved. And I think Cheng uh, might have some things to say about that. Yeah, thanks so much, Jermaine. Yeah, so, so when we're looking at DEI work, um, we have to really delve into what potentially could go wrong or potentially not what we're trying to get to. Um, with, you know, um, employee resource group is a great example in which you have uh, affinity groups in which people believe that they are tied to a specific um, identity, decided to get together and project influences both within and also externally for the business. So a, a good example of that will be the LGBTQ plus group in which you have 
um, you know, individuals that identify as LGBTQ or maybe they're allies of, the, of that group. Um, and they want to not only diversify their population to retain and recruit LGBTQ individuals, but also to be able to maximize their aspect of feeling a safe space and psychological safety within the, um, the organization. But, you know, one of these, these organizational groups, you know, really goes beyond LGBT, right? There's um, veterans and active military members, there's uh, ethnic groups and cultural groups. But the thing is that usually what we've seen is that these groups can be dominated by a specific gender identity or dominated by a specific, um, you know, a group of identities. So a good example of LGBTQ, you know, the groups that we've seen so far they tend to be more white gay male oriented. Um, and therefore, if you're a transgender individual or maybe you're a bisexual individual, they tend to kind of shy away when the group only reflects that representation. So with that, it comes in mind of that potential um, discriminatory factor in which you know are these um, groups potentially discriminating against specific identities or excluding certain identities, which will be counter to what we're trying to achieve when it comes to you know belonging and inclusion and so forth so so with that in mind it's important for organizations to really communicate and to make sure that there's adequate representation in these groups and to communicate why we have these groups um, they're not to exclude but they're to educate they are to unite they are to recruit and retain um, how do we broadcast and celebrate intersectionality of different identities together to help each other understand identities they have in common, but also identities that may be a little bit more, you know, um, not as familiar to them. Um, and be able to showcase that there's commitment from the company by, you know, adding, you know, you have corporate executive sponsors and so forth to be able to add in that diversity component to kind of shift away from a dominant demographic within that group as well. Um, I know Jermaine has a lot more on legal risks here, so I'll defer to Jermaine on that. So actually not a lot more. I think that um, I'm not gonna be as profound as people may have thought that I was gonna be. Really from a legal standpoint, the major risk as a lawyer myself is really that you never have anything in writing that's gonna be used against the organization or any of the major stakeholders. And so when you are developing policies and developing procedures, you wanna make sure that you're using very inclusive but general language and you just simply, I mean, not simply, there goes, there's a little bit more to this, but, but if I'm simplifying it, just making sure that there's no violations against any protected classes of people. But from my perspective, for the purposes of, of, of this sort of panel, I'm not really sure that the, the legal risks are really the main concern. From my perspective, I think that the main risks are to the development of a successful strategy, company strategy around DEI, is where there's a lack of diversity and inclusion sort of in senior management and board level folks that poor decisions are being made <clears throat> and, and they're being made without any questions or challenges to the status quo. And so that really um, breaks down the entire DEI structure and, and eventually the boat will sink, right? And so basically, if we continue to keep the top looking the way it looks and operating as, it's ha as it has, poor decisions continue to be made that affects every other level in the organization. And so now the, now the challenge becomes, um, for folks who are part of this trickle down effect, who are not necessarily the top tier decision makers, they have to, they are in a position now um, where they're putting themselves at potential risk 
as, as employees um, if they don't fall in line or if they push back too much. So there's like this delicate dance that that you're doing when you're not on top and when you're not really making the decisions. And I mean, there, there are definitely other considerations to be made um, or to be had, you know, like, like data and how we use it. Um, I always tell people never use anyone else's data, use your own because you never know how they're manipulating the data that they've received. So if you don't know it, don't use it. Um, you know, other, other organizational considerations are making sure that you have buy-in from, from just the very folks that I was talking about a little bit um, a little bit ago. Um, and in terms of hiring practices and, and, and employment policies to making sure that you have fair and equitable um, policies in place to make sure that there's no holes in those policies and make sure that they're solid. Um, do you have any other thoughts, Renee? Uh, you know, thank you, uh, Jermaine. You definitely touched on a lot. I think for me, when I think about this, obviously I'm working in a little bit of, you know, broader sector of businesses, a little a lot of diversity of businesses. I do think about the business risk around this. If you're not thinking about your diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda holistically, if you don't have a strategy in place, and it can really impact your bottom line in a variety of ways. And look, First and foremost, your business is only as good as your people. And, you know, in the absence of having a clear commitment um, and deliverables and metrics around your DEI um, conversations, you know, it's going to be very difficult to get that talent that you need in your organizations. Employees have become extraordinarily more discerning than ever before. I mean, they are definitely pulling back the curtain to see if what you're projecting or what you're saying is matching up with what you're doing. Um, as we know, there is this there is this climate and environment where talent is very okay with saying no to what we perceived or some some of us in different generations might have perceived as a great opportunity because it doesn't align with that individual's values. So if you have put out DE&I as a strategic priority for your organization, but there's no teeth behind it, you're going to lose out on top tier talent. And similarly with the employees that you already have in place who might have been energized two or three, two, three years ago when you first really went all in on this. And if there's nothing that's continuing to grow and build and change that's not being articulated and shared, and even the and even the, the mistakes and the mishaps that not owning that and not communicating that with your existing employees, you're going to lose out on people. It has to be um, so it so in terms of risk, that risk on talent is is huge with regard to the hiring, with, with regard to the retention, to piggyback on what Jermaine said as well as like, you know, if you're not putting in and building out DEI throughout your entire talent ecosystem, you know, you're also going to impact your bottom line by, you know, ultimately, you know, having bias inherent in all of on all of your teams, right? Like birds of a feather flock together, like attracts like, affinity bias. That leads to group think, group think and group think leads to either, a, you know, best case scenario, very stagnant decisions that may not, you know, continue to help grow your organizations. Worst case scenario, you have, you know, yes, people in your organization that are not driving innovation and change and ultimately can really, you know, undermine the growth of your organization. The second part of this, I would say the other biggest risk that, you know, organizations have to think about, you know, whether no matter what industry you're in, it's like the brand risk. The reality is, again, that um, we live in a very, very vocal society now. It's, it used to be uh, analysis and criticism was limited to one or two platforms, and there are so many more now. Um, there's so much more exposure. Social media has taken 
the place of um, consumption for so many people around how they're getting their information, how they're getting their news, how they're digesting it, what they believe and what they don't believe. So again, if you've put out a message or you're trying to figure out what this DE&I agenda is going to be with you, it needs to be fully thought out you know, well-baked into your organizations, rooted in your company, value proposition, you know, looked at through the lens of your policies and processes, or you will be called out by a very opinionated public. And it only takes one thing that might seem small, benign, or without malintent to really go viral and undermine, you know, what your business is really trying saying it stands for and what they're trying to do and how they're trying to grow. So we've seen it. I mean, not to, I was at an organization that, you know, that saw that and as a result tried to build out a DEI agenda. They had a huge misstep because social media eviscerated them um, and took a long time for them to get out of that hole. And that, by, by the way, that hole is just is money. You're just throwing money out of the window. And at the end of the day, we're all in business to try and not only impact change, but also to drive revenue. Um, but they have to be, there has to be some symbiosis between them and making sure that they're aligned and with good intentions. So Jason, I don't know what else you'd like to add here. Just a, a few thoughts. I think um, because of that environment you're explaining, I find a lot of companies somewhat become immobilized or they become concerned with what terms, what words should I use? And I get this question all the time. And many times people want to know, well, is it BIPOC or do I use African-American? Which one is it? It's so complicated. And uh, my answer is, is I always say, well, don't ask me to organize the Davids. And what do, what do, we, what do I mean by that is uh, we all know some people who are called Dave and some people go by David. Now, if I said, I'm going to go around the world and organize every single Dave and David, and we're going to host a conference and force them to choose either you're Dave or David, everyone would think that's ridiculous. Like you don't do that. I don't go around my neighborhood renaming people to make it easy for myself, but somehow we look at people of color LGBTQ community or any underrepresented group, and we want this simple way to name them as if they're just a monolith. Like somehow we, you just take me to your leader and all of a sudden the word will magically appear, we'll all agree. And I think the fact of the matter is these communities are very diverse. And not only that, you have a right to your own name and how I identify myself. And many times what I find is the company's desire to make it easy is what I see the risk is that by doing that, you've in fact alienated the very demographic that you're working with. And it's a demographic that very much has a right to its own name and what we call ourselves. And I see many companies in their desire to make it simple or many employees um, that they really push back on that. And, and that's why I would remind them like, I can't organize the Davis for you. And we already have this skill. We do this in our lives already. If you think about it, I have many friends who uh, don't call me Jimmy, I'm Jim. And I apologize and call them Jim or whatever it might be. So we have this skill fundamentally that we, in fact, everyone you know, you have memorized their name. And in fact, you've probably memorized all the nuances of their name that they don't like and how they pronounce it, in many cases, how they spell it. So why would you assume people of color would be any different? Like my identity is very unique to me. Um, and, you know, Cheng kind of mentioned this earlier, right? That evolves as well. Like a person's identity evolves and changes as they, they age and be more comfortable. And let's be honest, the world has not always been open to the LGBTQ community. So I'm not surprised that many people may not want to share that. And that's the right too. And in fact, both things are true at the same time, that a person may evolve, the world may not be ready for them. It could be very difficult for a variety of reasons, all of which are valid at the same time. And we don't get to pick and choose that for them. 
So, you know, that was the thing I would caution companies with at this moment in time is that um, many times people are worried to say the wrong thing. So they want this easy answer. But uh, the fact is, in many cases, it's going to be complicated. Um, and although, you know, companies have been called out, that is what inclusion and equity looks like, that I have a voice and have a right to use it. And what we're seeing now is actually um, a demographic of people who have historically been denied a voice. And now that they exercise it, the response is, oh, it's too much. It's unfair to me. And I think, no, this is what it feels like when you're on the other end of it, when our communities have been silenced and um, these things have been directed towards us and we had no voice to respond. That seemed appropriate. That's why, because that's the history, you know, what we're experiencing now is actually what equity and inclusion look like when that demographic can, can now say, no, I do not have to suffer that. I have a right to speak up and call you out about your behavior. Um, and I can see why some people feel like, oh, it's too much or whatever. I mean, I, I think there's probably some, some truth in that, so I wouldn't deny all of that. But at the same time, what you're actually seeing, and I think this is what we need to help people understand, is uh, this is what a voice looks like. When I speak up and call out behavior that's inappropriate, this, this is what it's going to look like. This is that exchange. And I think, um, and you know, Renee, you kind of talked about this earlier, this, this idea of institutionalized privilege. That's what institutionalized, that's how institutionalized privilege responds to voice that typically it not, had never heard, that it typically tries to reframe it like what you're doing is wrong and therefore silence that community. So it's interesting how these things become so systematic and when they're not called out, that's actually what happens that it seems very normal that, oh, the response is too much. We call it cancel culture. Like even defining it that way puts the onus on the people who spoke up somehow that what I've said is wrong and I should not be doing that. When in fact, all I'm doing is voicing my concern. And when you injure me, I have a right to say you have injured me. And I think that is the conversation we also need to have because we've often framed it from the perspective of privilege, that it, when a group is being called out for their behavior, they can actually re redefine the conversation. You can see that. And um, we've actually seen it too with um, many diversity programs, right? Like, oh, we shouldn't have quotas. Like calling it a quota, reframe the conversation so that somehow the employment of people of color or underrepresented groups is somehow wrong and we can't overdo it as if it had over been, ever been overdone. Like somehow we're at risk that we might employ too many people of color. Like that has never happened. But if you think about it, that framing perfectly limits the conversation. That by saying quotas, and we see it in every space, it, even, you know, as attorneys, I'm sure you're like, we can't have quotas, quotas are illegal, we can't do. But in what other business context would you not have an outcome, a measurable outcome? I mean, that's just a fact of how we do business. We have measurable outcomes, but we've now framed it somehow that this could, we're at risk of too many people of color or too many women in our employment place. And it's interesting how that has been reframed. So with that being said, though, I think it drives us to kind of the next question, Renee, and that is this idea of how do we hold uh, companies accountable? You know, um, I think we want them to make change, but we also want them to be accountable. And how do we do that? So I'd be curious to see your thoughts on that, Renee. Yeah, I think Jason, look, I'm, you and I have done a lot of thought sharing on this uh, in our paths I've crossed, and I know you've done a lot of work in this space, but I mean, it's very simple and you, you alluded to it, right? Like what gets measured gets done. Uh, and in the absence of really setting some guidelines and KPIs and targets, it's there's very little movement that is going to be had because it's just going to be a, a, an agenda of do-goodism 
which is, you know, the kiss of death for anything DE&I related. Uh, this is a business imperative. And like you said, every other business imperative in an organization has KPIs. You know, uh, we have to start well, let me take a step back. I mean, the first thing you can do to, to make that change and to be accountable, I think the first step in all fairness is to really double down on some self-reflection. And that requires also like right off the bat, like doing your own DE&I audit, like looking at your employee life cycle, looking at your businesses, looking at your marketing, looking at how you're spending your money um, in a diverse vendor space and seeing where you are. And then to that end, building out a strategy and attaching you know, some clear company targets, KPI metrics around it, building it into the performance reviews of leaders. Uh, throughout the entire business. Anyone who's managing people, anyone who's a people leader in any capacity should have some type of DEI performance metric tied to their performance reviews and their salaries and their bonuses. Um, you have to define the what's in it for me. I call it the WIFM um, for you know, all the people at the table who are going to be held accountable for this. So you have to have, you know, this global, you know, universal strategy, but allow for customization in there so that it can align with where the different, where different people, where different parts of the business, where different functions are along in their DE&I journey. But you have to tie those, those KPIs. In addition to that, you know, in terms of actually embedding and implementing change and accountability, the organization, you have to make the investment in this. Um, you know, Jason, I think all of us have seen in some capacity, this ends up like getting assigned, you know, sometimes to some another human being who already has their core day job per se. And now, you know, the onus is often put on maybe a person from an underserved or, you know, part of the business that has raised their hand or have expressed interest and said, okay, do that in addition to what, you know, we're expecting to, you to do with regard to your day-to-day -day responsibilities, that's not going to drive change. That's not going to drive accountability. You have to make the investment in the pe in people, whether you're building out a department or a team around this, you have to put budget around this. Um, and you have to like, you know, build out allyship and sponsorship and accomplishment, accomplish, accompliceship throughout levels, all levels of the organization, especially with leadership. Leadership has to own this, buy into this, and actually walk the talk around this and be held accountable to communicate around this. You know, and lastly, I, I would, you know, say that, um, you know, if you're thinking about it, if you already have a strategy in place and you're trying to continue to build out that more momentum and to make sure that accountability is still there and visibility is there, you know, make sure you think about the educate, amplify, and continue to celebrate, you know, and communicate, you know, educate, whether it's through your internal communications, your internet, your newsletters, comms, you know, sharing your DEI journey, sharing your strategy, sharing your metrics, sharing your KPIs, um, you know bringing, when I say amplify, bringing different voices in, in the organization to the table. You know, if you look around the room and your team is pretty homogenous, it's time to reevaluate where you have to tap into other people. Who do you have to invest in development and bring along? Um, that's how change starts to become embedded and becomes the cultural movement versus just an initiative. That's the responsibility of one or two people. And like that's celebrated, communicate, you know, making sure you're talking about the wins as much as you're talking about the things you're not doing, um, iterating on your strategy as needed, but don't change it to change it, change it to challenge yourself, change it to do better, change it to improve, change it to hit, to stretch. Um, those are just some of the things I think that you can do to make 
that change a little bit more sticky to drive accountability. You know, Chang mentioned employee resource groups, building in employee resource groups into, you know, your business model, leveraging them as, you know, focus groups for your business, getting, getting them to inform on your strategy and give feedback on your strategy. You're like, you want to create a strategy for your organization, but you want it to, to create it you want to create it with them um, and not in the absence of them or their voices. And that makes, again, that change and that accountability a lot more sticky. Uh, Jermaine, any other thoughts on this uh, as you thought about, especially from the other side of the equation, whether it's education or specific to the legal industry? Well, I think just in general, part of the problem that we have is that, that, that organizations have created this environment where they feel like creating <clears throat> metrics and measurements is this sort of out of this world idea that they've never heard of right because it's directly related to DEI and so my response to that is like have you ever read a book like all you have to do is find some resources out there right but something that you said earlier resonated with me also you said you got to something to the effect of you have to invest in your people and one of the ways that you can invest in your people is have them invest in the organization with their skills that may not necessarily be in alignment with whatever their primary job is but but it's around sort of this DEI work, they are very interested and in, they're invested in because they want the organization to look differently. So creating diversity committees for the sake of creating diversity committees doesn't necessarily work, right? But creating diversity committees with a very specific charge, and if that charge is creating metrics and, and managing outcomes and creating ways to measure where we are in terms of our DEI work is probably a better use of their skills. Um, there are four books that I use sort of like Bibles and I've been using um, some of these from, for longer than others. I will, I think I can put them in the chat and I will later on, but if not, this session is being recorded. So you all can figure that out at some later time. Um, the one thing I'll point out about the books that I think is really important is that they're written by people of different races and ethnicities, different genders, and also people of different socioeconomic status of origin, which I think is very important because the way that you look at the world um, from where you from where you started to sort of where you are now is different. And so the people who who have written some of these books who come perhaps from a lower socioeconomic status of origin have a very different perspective on how they grow in the world and how the world grows around them. And it's just something that I've paid particular attention to as I if I, as I've done research and have been sort of in this DEI world. Um, the first one is Moving Diversity Forward, How to Go from Well-Meaning to Well-Doing, which is by Bude Myers. Um, the second one is by Stephen Frost. It's called Building an Inclusive Organization, Leveraging the Power of a Diverse Workforce. Um, the third one is How to Be an Inclusive Leader, Your Role in Creating Cultures of Belonging Where Everyone Can Thrive. And that's by Jennifer Brown. And then the final one that I've been using most recently is cultures of belonging, building inclusive organizations. Um, and so I just think that they've been great resources to me sort of in this new in this new space that um, that I take up at the law school that I currently work at. Um, and I think that they can help you all um, with some of the work that you're doing. And I think you have your hand up, Renee. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in there and like not like a total shameless not a shameless plug, but legitimately, I've worked with Jason. Uh -huh. Jason also just, um, you know, published a book that really outlines and defines, you know, around how to build out a strategy, how to build out accountability, how to tie in those metrics. So um, 
I actually have, I read it, utilize it. I remember when Jason shared it with us theoretically uh, when we were all in the sports industry. So Jason, I would love to like ask you to share a little bit more on like your philosophy around that, Absolutely. what that looks like and um, highly recommend those of you, just those of you in the audience embarking on your DEI journey. That's a great starting point as well, Jason. Thanks, Brunette. I sure appreciate that. Uh, yeah, the book is Diversity Inclusion Matters. Uh, I just recently, Renee actually wrote the forward. Uh, Renee has been a, a great colleague, so I definitely appreciate that. Um, and what you'll find is that I'm overly practical, especially when it comes to data around uh, diversity. And so um, it's probably a weakness and a strength at the same time. Um, but what I outlined in the book, and actually um, a lot of it's based on some of the work I did um, well, at the U.S. Olympic Committee, I actually came up with a way to measure the diversity within the Olympic Committee. But what it pointed out, for example, is um, the U.S. volleyball team, the women's team, is typically one of the best in the world, almost always top three. And my data showed that you have the best team in the world and no women on the, on the, on the bench, or no women coaching this team. 70% of all the athletes that play volleyball in the U.S. are women, yet no coaches. And just by pointing that out, you know, it's funny how people knew it intuitively, but when they see the data, it changes their behavior. And so they've changed that. I also, USA Hockey, not to call these people like they're terrible, but, you know, they had over hundred plus employees, no people of color. Um, you know, so the te technique, I call this CAPE, like you collect, you analyze, you plan, you execute, I write all this in the book. And then um, we have a small little start that helps people understand these metrics. Because what I find is that the many times you'll have a situation in a company where someone is hired uh, you know, 20 people and no women or one woman. And at some point you can call out like, this is the exact behavior that needs to be addressed on some level. Now, a lot of times people all say, well, you know, diversity is more than just the number. And I'm like, yeah, it is, but that is a piece of it. Like that's a major piece we got to talk about. If you can make 27 straight hires and not hire a woman, something else is going on. Like that's a form of bias that needs to be tracked. Or if you look at even who, who's getting promoted and when they get promoted, that's a good measure of your inclusion, you know? And for me, again, I'm overly practical, but I'd like to start with, I wanna be paid fairly and I wanna be promoted at a rate that's relative to my peers. Like to me, that is that diversity inclusion that's overly practical, but those are the tools that organizations really need to begin tracking because they tell you something about your organization, where you are, how you do business. And you know, I know that I am personally overly practical on these metrics, but I do think, um, especially when you have a lot of leaders who don't, um, work in the diversity space and you sit down with them, I think many times they're overwhelmed. Like they understand diversity, inclusion, and equity generally, but they don't know what am I supposed to do? When you when I get back to my desk and I'm the manager of accounting, what am I supposed to do? And I think there are some things that I think you should point out to them. Well, let's look around who gets hired in this place and who makes that hiring decision? How do you go about that hiring process? Who gets promoted, right? How long do they stay? Well, how long does it take them to get promoted? Like there are some data points um, that I think you can hold leaders accountable to that makes sense to them because one of the responses could be my department's not very diverse. Okay. And I never had a chance to hire. So you probably could look the same way for an entire year. Like that's possible. And I think any of us who work in the academic space know like there's not a lot of hiring going on in general. So we should not be surprised for some leaders. There's not going to be more diversity, but the other next piece is, well, who gets promoted then if we do promotions, when we look at annual reviews, um, what are we seeing? What kind of data is being you know reflected in that? And so I do think um, there are some data points that we should use to hold people accountable that, um, I, you know, for me are overly practical. I think, Chang, this is where you have done a good job of calling me out and said, you know, Jason, there, there's more to us than that. But I'd like to turn to you and, and have you kind of add your piece to this as well. 
Yeah, thanks so much, Jason. Um, I, I know there's a lot of conversation around metrics and measurement. So, so I think as we kind of implement any of these efforts, I think it's important to look at change management as well in terms of how do you manage change and kind of get from that current state to the state desired state that you're trying to get to. So of course, you know, there's that urgency concept that you have to have some sort of urgency in your organization. Uh, with the uh, efforts, you know, the urgency could be reaching more demographics, you know, retaining more employees, recruit, recruiting more employees and so forth. And then you kind of get, you know, different approaches with change management in terms of do you get the whole system in the room approach in which you can include everybody who has some sort of role in any processes that you're trying to accomplish and deliver your deliverables in your business. But there are also, you know, many um, pitfalls that, you know, change management tends to kind of step misstep. So, you know, with change management, it's, it's important to establish that sense of urgency and project that and communicate that. Um, and also to create a powerful coalition that helps you guide this uh, message out. So not only do you need your leader support in that effort, but you also need a lot of grassroots support from your managers, from your frontline employees in communicating to them in terms of how can this change benefit them in their day-to-day -day that will be applicable and that will be um, something urgent that they want to do to shift to that desired state. Um, it's also important to look at you know, a vision kind of articulating the direction in which the organization needs to move and why we need to move and how this is gonna benefit not only the organization, but this is how this is gonna benefit the employees on a personal level. And make sure the communication's always there, consistent, um, and that you are removing obstacles in order to accomplish to the new vision. Meaning if you have employees, frontline employees that are, you know, can't make certain efforts to get to that deliverable, what can you do to kind of help them alleviate those obstacles to get to where they need to be? Um, and then, you know, it's important to systematically plan for and creating short-term wins, but not celebrate wins so quickly. Um, after you know five to ten years, so average change actually takes about seven to eight years to really roots in the organization, and declaring a victory too early, too soon may kind of uh, hinder that process. Um, and and lastly, you know it's important to kind of anchor the change in the corporation's culture, knowing that your organization has a lot of different subcultures that might bubble up that may impact the direction of your organizational culture, and to be able to really immerse um, DEI efforts into to your corporate culture as well. Uh, so I'll go ahead and um, turn it over to Tom. I know um, that the audience might have a lot of burning questions that we might want to have the panel answer. Thanks, Xingyu. Yes, um, there are some great questions in the Q&A and I know the, some of the panelists are in there answering as well. Um, it, the answer to what several people asked, which was, can Jermaine put the list of books is listed. If you go into the Q and A and you click on answered questions, you'll see uh, that he's listed the books there um, for somebody's question. So, did we want to maybe start at the top? Um, and I see Renee uh, was interacting with Mary's question in there. Uh, Mary says, "Our NFP is committed to DEI, but we are a cyber organization. We consider a lack of diversity one of our big threats." We work with orgs like Black Girls in Cyber. There's so much competition for this talent. Do you have any advice? Yeah, the, the tech conversation is really tough. I actually have quite a few clients I'm dealing with right now. Um, 
a little, I had a little ambiguity around your question. So I, I think what you're asking is around the talent pipeline in this space. What I have found, and if I, if I haven't answered that properly, Mary, please feel free to reach out to me directly or separately, and I'm happy to chat offline. But what I have found is that you're right, it is super competitive. It is really, really um, difficult and salaries are a challenge as well, all of these things. It, I have found that this is a little bit also of a slow burn. And I tend to think that everyone is going to the same pools. You know, everyone is are going to the same five schools around tech talent, right? Everyone, I call it, this is no shade or negativity, but like the Ivy League mafia, right? Like we, they, there's a profile that is so very, very structured around what this talent needs to look like. And we're not looking at a other schools, other pipelines as, as other schools, other programs as resources to pipeline talent, the schools that we generally lean in on and everyone's fishing in that same pond is only like, what is it? I think Harvard accepts like point, like point, 8% of all applications. So there's a ton of kids that were eligible to go to Harvard that just weren't another, other, there weren't seats there. How do we go back and go to other universities or schools and tap into that pipeline? The other thing um, that I would recommend is, you know, going a layer, not only different schools, number one, um, there are a ton of other smaller local grassroots organizations that you can tap into that are not as big, that are building out talent at any um, given place. Uh, the Posse Foundation is a national organization that is doing amazing thing with young diverse, amazing things with young diverse talent. They're taking them and pipelining them through um, boarding school and that middle school, high school range and getting them into top tier schools. And they have a tremendous and robust alumni association. Um, their average age is I think between 22 and 42. So there's a pipeline there. So organizations like the Posse Foundation, the Jackie Robinson Foundation, some things that are like, they're creating talent in this tech space that no one's thinking about. And then also I was gonna say, go a layer down. What I have a lot of my clients um, doing now and they're having success is getting a little bit earlier in the game, talking to those high school students, you know, tracking them into those colleges, working with them at that freshman, sophomore year cycle, even maybe before they're getting internships and starting that employee branding relationship, those career conversation panels with those groups. It drives connectivity between those emerging tech leaders who are going to be thinking about, you know, organizations that they want to go to and it helps them think beyond the Googles of the world. So those are just some things tactically I would recommend um, have a plethora of organizations and lists I can give you about things of how to think about this, but just like top line, that's what I would say um, could potentially be a partnership. And also sometimes I will also say that some of these partnerships and organizations, they do have, you know, pay models, they're pay to play models. And sometimes especially smaller organizations and nonprofits don't necessarily always have those resources to sit in those spaces. So a lot of these organizations are willing to barter as well. And, you know, think about what you have to offer, whether it's career panels, resume writing workshops with folks in your ecosystem for their pool of students or talent or young professionals. You'd be surprised how many are willing to do that exchange and give you access to their talent pool and their talent pipeline as well. So keep the conversation very open and fluid and don't, you know, don't be daunt, don't, don't be deterred by the fact that they're like, oh, it costs $30,000 to get access to our alumni. There's always a way to negotiate around that because believe me, not every organization has access to those resources and they're still catching that talent. 
I think some of your um, answers there, um, tapping into pipelines early, going into you know school systems, etc., is is interesting, and particularly because there's other questions here that are asking a similar. They're really asking the same thing, but they're they're asking it specific to their industry. So there's a question about um, health, the healthcare, hospitals, from Catherine. It's really the same question: How do you get upper management doctors who have been around for a long time and manage a healthcare system? Um, to take this on? What, what do you bring to them? And then there's a similar question from someone who works uh, for a river authority. We have a small quasi-government uh, river authority, not uh, 230 employees. Um, it's hard getting diverse applicants. So it, it seems to me that people are asking similar questions and looking at it through the lens of their industry. Um, anybody else have thoughts on how, to, how one tackles their industry? I would just have a, a quick add. One is uh, you should have realistic expectations of what you can actually achieve. You know, many times the people, the reason people are disappointed is uh, their assumption of how diverse they can be is actually disproportionate to the reality of it is number one. And um, I have a ton of metrics and things I can help people with that around that. But there's a second piece too. What I often find too is systemically, we typically hire people based on what they know rather than their potential to do the job. And what happens is if you're in an industry that historically is disproportionately white, you will find few people of color who have the experience. So what happens is we systematically create this threshold based on have you done it before? And as a result, those historical groups who have been denied access don't have the experience to be able to say I've done it before. So you have to hire on, do you have the potential to do it? And by just simply changing that mindset, you actually create a wider pool of applicants because as we see this increased demand for certain skill sets, we have also seen the unemployment rate for people of color has always been twice that of their white peers. And part of the reason that is so uh, stubborn to move is systemically, we've created this issue of we hire based on what you've done before. Well, I've obviously not done it before. Therefore, disproportionately, people of color will be systematically removed from the pool. So you have to move to a model of, do you have the potential? And generally that will work. And we see it all the time, like this year in the Super Bowl, I'm a sports fan, but anyway, both coaches, right? First-time coaches. They had never done it before. They were hired on potential. So there is a history to show it works. What happens is systemically, people of color and women aren't seen for their potential. They're seen, have you done it before? And many times their white male peers are seen as, do they have the potential? And we even frame the questions in the interview around that. So those subtle changes will actually expand the market. And thinking about the demographic and the systemic things you do will be part of the solution. I'm going to just add to that, Jason, just you're 100% right. And I also I would also just say for some of you who might be experienced, I know I have seen that that idea of potential has been triggering for certain organizations as they have to think about it. I would also recommend um, shifting your hiring and recruiting practices around for away from it's always about being experienced. Where do you work exactly? What do you know what you can do right now? or exclusive, like that's a, that has been problematic with driving diversity. I would recommend, and I see a lot of tech companies that are doing this and smaller organizations that are focusing and creating um, hiring panels and hiring processes that focus on competency, you know, like the ability to learn um, and then framing their questions and their measurements around that person's 
fit or potential for the organization through the lens of competency and the ability to learn, because it will help drive a lot more diversity in that space. We tend to kind of get a little bit myopic and in that instance, we're like limiting and bottlenecking the pipeline when it comes to diversity. I wanted to add very quickly also with regard to those of you that have industry specific um, questions and one around, um, I think it was the doctors and how to get them to buy in the DEI agenda. I mentioned this earlier and I would say this like broadly, it's like you really have to focus on or frame the conversation around what's in it for them. What, what, are, what do they have to deliver on? What are their priorities, whether they're doctors or wherever they are in your organization, whatever kind of organization it is, what are they focusing on? What are their deliverables? There's always a way to weave in a diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda that will serve their individual purposes. And you also have to be okay with, there might be one or two that are never gonna join the conversation. They might not be a DEI angle for them. And I what I have also learned though that even if they're not participating proactively, if you get enough of a few other people to participate and buy in and start to see some incremental success, the rest will come because I do know people are generally very competitive in the workplace and leadership in particular, and they don't wanna be left behind. So as you're thinking about how to bring people along in this conversation or bring up the topic, start with what are their priorities and what is it, what's in it for them to have this conversation? What's in it for them to build out some DEI metrics? What wins can come out of this for them? Um, there might be some folks that it's just gonna be really about feeling good about themselves and doing the right thing, start there. And then we can get into the more strategic agenda later on. With regards to the question around governmental entities and smaller organizations, I would push you and just say that it's actually not a different strategy in terms of like recruiting talent. I think, again, if you make a commitment around DE&I, articulate that and put some structure and teeth around it and make it a part of your employee brand value proposition and your narrative around the culture of your organization. Are you going to have an influx of diversity come in overnight? Maybe not, but you can start to build out that attractiveness as an organization because it should then might give you know, it should then give the sense of psychological safety for diverse employees potentially potential employees to think that this might be an organization, while I don't see myself in there right now, I see their commitment around this and I'm willing to take that journey. So in the absence of having a robust, diverse employee base, start thinking about your employee value proposition, start thinking around your DEI agenda and how you're going to communicate that externally to the world to show that commitment and stay vested in that commitment for the long haul. And I think you'll see some organic growth there. Thank you. And we're we're running out of time, but there's one final question that I think we can actually extend what you just said, Renee, um, and maybe give uh, the, the panel at large an opportunity to weigh in on this. Is any of the question, the person asks any advice on how to advocate for more support from upper leadership in regards to their post Floyd pledges without seeming as if I'm calling them out for dropping the ball. I'm a black woman in a mostly white workspace. So from the perspective of We've done a lot of talking about the perspective of a DEI um, officer working with senior leadership to build these things in and how to how to measure, et cetera. From the perspective of an average employee who's part of an organization who wants to say something, wants to push on leadership, does anybody have thoughts there as, as we wrap up today's event? So I, the caveat to what I'm about to say is that not everyone can do this, and I understand that. 
But I think that sometimes we are more concerned as people of color in the workplace about being amenable than we should. We work in environments where they're not concerned about being inclusive, but we're concerned about their feelings. Feelings are not facts and facts are forever. The feelings are temporary and they'll go away. So this idea that we allow ourselves to be, maybe mistreated is too strong of a word, but allow ourselves to be in environments where we are not necessarily seen all the time, but then are overly concerned with <clears throat> making everyone else in the room comfortable um, is, is really doing ourselves and the organizations a disservice. Now, I, again, I just want to say I don't want anybody getting fired or removed from their job, um, but understand that, that there is a level of responsibility that you have to, to, to make it known that you are not working in the kind of space that you want to work in. Yeah, I'll just add to that, you know, um, I think it's important, although we really shouldn't be articulating a business case for diversity anymore, it does help when you can say, you know, um, adding more leadership or adding more individuals of diverse backgrounds will help you expand and provide more insights into spaces where organizations could potentially expand into. So a good example of that will be at Netflix, in which, you know, traditionally it came with a lot of American shows. But as you know, with the recent, you know, surge with K-pop and Korean drama, um, they said, you know, maybe the, our American shows are not resonating with our international populations where we're trying to expand. And they're true because culturally, you know, what we can relate to as Americans may not be culturally relatable to Koreans in South Korea. So they've expanded on, you know, Korean drama, Korean show, they pour in hundreds of million dollars in that. And they got instant connection, not only with our American population who are very diverse on its, on its own, but they also are able to get these audiences. So, you know, tying that business vision could really move the needle and could really change the demographic of the organization in terms of being more inclusive of all the consumers and all the participants in your community and in your business realm. Thank you, Cheng Yu. Any final thoughts, Jason, Renee, anybody? I just want to say thanks. I appreciate it. I know we're out of time here, so. Okay, Definitely. wonderful. So to all four of you, in all seriousness, this has been an amazing conversation. I think um, our, our attendees would agree with that. I really appreciate all of your time in planning this coming together on this. I want to extend a special thanks to Western Governors University for, again, coming together, collaborating um, with another academic institution, Albany Law School. And to our attendees, I want to thank you for your time, of course. I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of their day. And for now, this concludes the event. Thanks, everybody. Bye.